Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make sure you're aware of a few things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks at Hope Church LV, and also be sure to check out our website at hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're going as a church. Once again, thank you so much for checking out this sermon at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. As I begin this morning, I want to give you some stats that in some way kind of capture the spiritual landscape that we live in in 2019. So these are going to be a cross-section of a lot of different areas. Here's the first one. More than 1,700 pastors leave or quit the ministry every single month. It's over 20,000 pastors a year that quit the ministry. One in four Americans say they are done with church. And half of all Americans say they are done with God and that He plays no role in their life whatsoever. Generation Z. It's the newest generation. It's people born after 1996. So if you're 24 years of age or under, you are a part of Generation Z. Generation Z of that generation, 34% identify as atheist, agnostic, or non-religious. It's the highest that figure has ever been in any generation in the history of the United States. 27% of born-again Christians have had at least one divorce in their marriage. As we think about this globally, every year, 245 million Christians live in a place where they face high levels of persecution simply for following Jesus. Every month, every month, 105 Christian churches are attacked, burned, or vandalized. And every single day, somewhere in the world, 11 Christians are killed for simply following Jesus. That means last year, 4,136 people died simply because with their life they followed Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You say, why are you sharing those statistics with us? That's a, that's a pretty dark, bleak picture. Here's why. I want you to understand something today. We are in a spiritual battle that is very real. And if we're not careful, 
in our context in America, we can come to our churches that have buildings and facilities and budgets and staff and programming, and we can somewhat bury our head in the sand and forget and not realize that we're in the midst of a very real, very serious spiritual battle. David Platt, good friend of mine, summed it up this way. Listen to what he said. There is a spiritual battle presently raging for the souls of billions of men and women around the world. The scope of this spiritual battle is universal. It covers and comprises every tongue, tribe, language, nation, person, and people group. There is no place on earth where this war is not being waged. Let me say that line again. There is no place on earth. That means your neighborhood, my neighborhood, our community, our city. There's no place on earth where this war is not being waged. The stakes in the spiritual battle are eternal. There's a true God over this world who desires all people to experience everlasting joy in heaven. But there's also a false God in this world who desires all people to experience everlasting suffering in hell. We do not have time to waste. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesian church, said it this way. For our struggle. It's an important word, the word struggle. It's a word that literally described hand-to-hand combat. It was, it was not a struggle that's out there somewhere. That's what we're, if we're not careful as Christians, we know there's a spiritual battle, but we think it's this battle out there somewhere that's distant from me. But Paul uses a term and he qualifies it with the word our, for our struggle, our hand-to-hand, close-quarters combat. It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are in a spiritual battle, and it is very real. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. Hey, it's true whether you said amen or not. (laughs) We're in a battle, and it's real. For the last four weekends, we have been walking through a series out of Ephesians chapter 6 called Battle Lines. How to stand firm in the midst of a fallen world. We've been exploring what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open it to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to get there in just a moment. But it's this section of Scripture that historically is referred to as the armor of God in Scripture. And what Paul is doing in this letter is he's equipping us how to stand firm in the midst of the battle that's very real. And when we launched into this series together, I promised you that we would cover three things. Three things that Paul said we must know if we're going to be able to engage in the battle. Let me remind you of those three things and kind of show you where we've come from. First of all, you need to know you have an enemy. You need to know you have an enemy. If you know you have an enemy, say amen. Amen. I'll say it again. You got an enemy whether you said amen or not. You have an enemy. I have an enemy. And and our enemy, we're going to talk about this in just a moment, he works deceptively in this world, and one of his chief deceptions is to convince us that he's not real. 
That's why over 60% of American Christians would say they don't believe Satan is a real thing. They just believe he's a symbol for evil. Why is that significant? Here's why it's significant. If you don't have an enemy, if the enemy's not real, then you don't have a battle. If you don't have a battle, then you don't need to be prepared. And if you don't have an enemy and you don't have a battle, the enemy's got you right where he wants you. But here's what we understood. You can't believe the Bible and not believe that we have an enemy whose name Paul calls him the devil who is very real. You can't believe the Bible and not believe that the devil is a real enemy. Say, why would you say that? Because every New Testament author and Jesus called the devil by name. Every one of them. He's mentioned by name over 70 times in the New Testament. Here's one of them. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Listen to it. Peter writes and he says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the who, say it out loud, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We have an enemy. He is the devil. The devil, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He's a fallen angel who leads an organization of fallen angels called demons. Now, I understand even hearing that there's some of us that check out because it sounds like we're talking Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. But you got to understand, that's another tactic of the enemy. He wants us to believe this stuff is cartoonish. He wants us to believe this stuff is fairy tale. Because again, if you don't know you got an enemy, you are not going to be ready for the battle. Our enemy is a fallen angel who leads a host of fallen angels. But here's the good news. He is already defeated. Amen? The Bible says he prowls around like a roaring lion. That's an important like, right? Because there's only one real lion in the Bible, and that's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he's already defeated our enemy, which means today we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory as followers of Jesus. But we must know we have an enemy. Amen? Number two, we said we must know how our enemy works. we got to know how he works. Our enemy's primary tool is deception. Our enemy is a liar. Say that out loud. A liar. You say, I don't know about calling somebody a liar. Listen, if Jesus called him a liar, we're in good company calling him a liar. Jesus said about him, he's a liar and the father of all lies. Our enemy uses deception to tempt us. Temptation for the non-Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're in this battle, whether you know it or not, and the enemy is tempting you with a life that is opposite of what God would have for you, and he's doing that to lead you away from ever experiencing a relationship with Jesus, to rob you of experiencing life on this earth, and to lead you to an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. If you're a Christian, the enemy equally is seeking to tempt you, and he's seeking to tempt you not to, so you can't have a relationship with Jesus, because if you're a Christian, there's the good news is there's nothing the enemy can do to steal away our relationship with Jesus. We're secure in him. But what he can do is steal away our usefulness for the sake of Jesus and for the kingdom of Jesus, and he can also steal away our joy in experiencing the abundant life that Jesus has promised us. But he does that through temptation, which is rooted in a lie. Let me give it to you in a statement I gave you last week. Here's the bottom line. All temptation. Let's read this out loud together. 
All temptation is rooted in the what? Say it out loud. Stop right there. All temptation is rooted in the what? Lie. Why? Because our enemy's a what? He's a liar. You got to know that. You got to know that. Let's start at the beginning. All temptation is rooted in the lie that something other than God and his will can meet the needs or satisfy the desires of my life. That's all temptation. Every temptation, you boil it down, and it's rooted in a lie that something other than God or something other than God's desire for me can, can, can meet the needs or satisfy the desires of my life. Let me, let me give you an example. We gave some of these last week, but I want to give you some. I want to be real practical. Let's take the sin of worry. You do know that worry is a sin, right? Some of you worried that I just said that, right? <laughs> worry is a sin. You say, how do you know that? Because two times in the New Testament, the Bible said, don't do it. If the Bible says don't do something, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, do not be worried about your life. And then Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing. The word anxious in Philippians, the word worry in Matthew are the exact same Greek word. The Bible says it is a sin for us to worry. What is worry? Here's what it is. It's rooted in a lie that something or someone other than God is in control. You know why you worry? Because you've bought the lie of the enemy. The enemy would say, oh, my gosh, look at what's going on out there in society today. Look at culture. Look how things are happening. Or they would say, man, look at the political landscape. Look at the unrest and the, the unsettling. Or, or look at what's happening at your job. Look at your boss. And the enemy would say, oh, your boss is in control. Or politics is in control. Or circumstances is in control. Or culture is in control. And when we start believing all of the lie, what happens? Oh, man, we start worrying. Man, who's in control? But here's the truth. God is in control. Listen, it doesn't matter what happens in Washington, D.C. It doesn't matter what happens on the other side of the world. It doesn't matter what happens in the streets of Las Vegas. God is sitting on the throne, and nothing is happening in your life or mine that has not been filtered through his hands of love for us. So here's why I don't have to worry, because the one who loves me is in control, and I can trust him. But temptation to worry is rooted in a lie. It's a lie. Give you another example. Lust. Lust. The temptation to lust is rooted in the lie that someone other than your spouse can meet and satisfy the physical needs of your life. That's the sin of lust. It's rooted, the temptation is rooted in a lie that what you really need to be satisfied is this. If you just had this, then you'd finally be content. Here's what we got to know. All temptation is rooted in the lie. The lie. Here's the big lie. Something or someone other than God can meet the needs or satisfy the desires of my life. So here's the third thing we promise you we're going to talk about. We're going to drill deeper this morning. Here it is. 
You need to know you can experience victory. You can experience. Listen, you do not have to live defeated by the enemy. He's already been defeated. There's some Christians, listen, who you think, you think you are destined to a life of failure. But I'm telling you, you do not have to be destined to a life of failure. We can experience victory. What's the opposite of a lie? The what? Say it again. The opposite of a lie is what? Let me show you the key to experiencing victory. I'll put it up here. The key to experiencing victory is to expose. Give me that one up here. To expose the lies of the enemy to the truth of God and by faith believe the what? There's the key right there. In every moment of temptation, I have to expose the lie of the enemy to the truth of God and then by faith believe the truth. And that is exactly what Paul is writing about in Ephesians chapter 6. Let's read it. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 13. Paul says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with... Say it out loud. This is so important to understanding the armor of God. Everything else about the armor is founded upon this. It's knowing the truth. The truth is the belt. It holds everything else together. He starts with the truth. Then he says, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We'll stop reading right there. I want to give you a definition I gave you last week that is a description of the armor of God. For too too long in my own life, and I think in a lot of Christianity, we simply see this text about the armor of God like a little spiritual ritual we're supposed to go through in the morning, like somehow our armor falls off at night and every morning we got to kind of go through this exercise of praying it back on. And I said last weekend, there's nothing wrong with doing that, but here's what I really believe convictionally the armor of God is. Let me show it to you. The armor of God is the moment-by-moment practice of responding to the attacks of the enemy by embracing through faith the truth about who I am in Christ and applying it that the truth uh, and applying that truth so Christ can victoriously live through me. The armor of God is given to us as a moment by moment practice where in faith we respond to the lies of the enemy by believing the truth. Last weekend, we talked about some of the positional truths that are listed here in the context of the armor of God. And we said that the first step to living this out is, number one, we must know the truth. If you're going to do battle in this world that we're living in, you must first of all know the truth. And we unpacked that last weekend. We talked about how we've been invited into a relationship with the one who is the truth. Jesus is the truth, and we've been invited into relationship with Jesus, and knowledge of the truth is born from intimate fellowship with the one who is truth. 
as you and I spend time alone with Jesus daily, we are preparing for the battle by getting intimately acquainted with the truth. If we don't know the truth, when the lies come, we will not be able to expose them to the truth. We must know the truth, which here's what that means. Time alone with Jesus is the single greatest step of preparation for the spiritual battle. Let me say it again. Time alone with Jesus is the single greatest step of preparation for the spiritual battle. And that's why the enemy fights against you doing that tooth and nail. The enemy, the enemy will give you distraction after distraction after distraction for spending time alone with Jesus. Why? Because he wants to deceive you into the lie. So the last thing he wants you doing is carving out time every day to be alone with the truth. Because if you're walking with the truth, then you're going to see the lie for what it is and expose the lie. If you are not alone with Jesus daily, you are wide open to the attacks of the enemy. Let me say it again. If you are not alone with Jesus daily, you are wide open to the attacks of the enemy. But knowing the truth is not everything. There's a second step. We must believe the truth. That's why, look at verse 16 again. Listen to what Paul said. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Hear me, Christian. Even though you carve out time to be alone with Jesus, you are still going to feel the battle. Time alone with Jesus doesn't mean no battle. Time alone with Jesus means you're prepared when it comes. And too many Christians think that because I've been with Jesus, because I prayed my armor on, now I'm good. And then they are shocked when the temptations come. They are shocked when their flesh begins to be enraged. They are shocked when the arrows come. But here's what Paul is telling us. Even though you know the truth, even though you're walking with the truth, you will face attacks from the enemy. That's the first reality I want you to hear today. You will face attacks from the enemy. If you believe that, say amen. amen. Hey, it's true whether you believe it or not. You'll face attacks from the enemy. Some people mistakenly assume that growth as a Christian means a lessening of the spiritual battle. People think, because I've been a Christian for this length of time, or because I've been walking with Jesus, or because my quiet time this morning was so rich, that now I've reached a place that I am somehow less involved in the struggle. But real growth as a Christian does not mean the, the absence of the struggle. Real, real growth as a Christian means a greater awareness of the reality of the spiritual struggle that we are engaged in. Real growth as a Christian does not mean the absence of sin in my life. Real growth as a Christian means an ongoing presence of a real struggle in my life. That's what it looks like. It's not that there's no battle. Paul here says... You need to be ready for the flaming arrows of the evil one. They're coming, and they're coming daily. 
But again, I think because the enemy has deceived us into believing that he's some cartoonish character, when we hear that, we envision this little red-suited Cupid-type fellow with one of those little arrows with kind of the suction cups on the end of it, and he's over here just weakly shooting a little arrow at us. That is not at all the context that Paul was writing from. Watch this video clip from a movie that will give you an image of what it looks like that we're being bombarded with flaming arrows. What we do in life echoes in eternity. When Paul wrote this, that was his image of battle. That's the way warfare was conducted when Paul wrote this. It wasn't one little arrow over here being shot by the enemy. No, it was a, an unleashing of a, 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 an arsenal of fiery arrows. And for the Christian, here's what you need to know. That's what every single day in the battle is going to look like. And you are kidding yourself if you think that somehow you've reached a place of spiritual maturity where that is not going to have an effect in your life and you can just breathe through that. We have an enemy that hates us, and he's seeking to destroy us. And every day, he is telling the archers to light up and fire away, and we are being bombarded. If you think something is wrong with you as a Christian because you face temptation, I want you to hear me today. Be encouraged. That's the battle. And there are a lot of Christians today who literally get discouraged and thinks thoughts like this. Can I really be a Christian and have that thought? Can I really be a Christian and struggle with that desire? I mean, after all of these years, I can't even believe that that still is something that is attractive to me. Here's what you need to know. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is not sin. And our flesh is not getting better, it's getting worse, which means this. The longings and the cravings and the wicked desires of our flesh is continuing to devolve. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is a reality of the battle we are engaged in as followers of Jesus. If you feel the arrows of the enemy, be encouraged. That's Christianity. Here's when you need to be, you need to be worried, when you don't feel the battle. The battle's real. My my dad named me after a very famous pastor. His name was Vance Havner, Dr. Vance Havner. 
And many of you have never heard of Dr. Vance Havner. If you're a kind of a preacher nerd or a theological nerd, you've probably read some or, or, or heard some of Dr. Vance Havner. Dr. Vance Havner came to Christ as a young boy. He preached the gospel for over 70 years. And then he, he also wrote 38 different books. I've, I'm actually collecting a lot of his first edition books. I've got about two-thirds of them already because he's my namesake. I was named after him. Had the privilege when I was a little boy in like 1982, 83, I would have been 11, 12 years old, had the privilege of getting to meet Dr. Havner. My dad had him come preach at our church in uh, Alabama. Billy Graham said of Vance Havner that he was the greatest minister of the 20th century. That's the impact Vance Havner had. Vance Havner came and preached at our church in the early 1980s. And I'll never forget meeting him. We were in the hallway of our church offices there, he and I and my dad. And my dad asked him a question. My dad was in ministry pastoring. I was just a little boy. And my dad turned to Dr. Havner and said, Dr. Havner, how can I pray for you? And here was this guy, been preaching 70 years, written 38 books, been a Christian for over 80 years. And here's what he said. Pray that I get home before dark. And here's what he meant as he unpacked that. I've been walking with Jesus a really long time, but I'm as capable today of failure as I've ever been. And pray that by the grace of God, I get home before I blow everything that God's done in and through my life. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. You will face the attacks of the enemy. Don't let the enemy convince you that something's broken in you because you feel the temptation. That is a very real thing in our lives. It's a very real thing. And listen, the more we've opened ourselves up and bought into the lies in the past, the greater the propensity in the future because we've created opportunities for our flesh that should have never been there, but now they're there. There's scars and, and wounds in our flesh that can be more open than, than ever before to the attacks of the enemy. But here's what I want you to hear me say. Here's the second thing. You can experience victory through faith. Even though the battle is real, even though the temptation is real, you can experience victory. Go back to the verse. He said, taking up the shield of faith. Here's what that looks like. In the moment of temptation, I must expose the lie to the truth of the to, to, to the lie of the enemy, to the truth of God, and by faith, I need to lift up the shield of faith and believe the truth. I love the way Tony Evans described it. Look at this. Tony Evans said, Faith is acting as if God is telling the truth. See, in the moment, the lie is, this is what you need to be happy. This is what you need to be fulfilled. This is what you need to be satisfied. But faith is acting as if God is telling the truth. Look what he goes on to say. It is acting as if something is true, even when it does not appear to be true, in order that it might be shown to be true simply because God said it's true. It's a good definition of faith. It's believing that what God said is true. Listen, in temptation, here's what happens. Even our own heart begins to lie to us. Not only do we have the enemy without, the devil, we have the enemy within our flesh 
that easily longs to believe the lies of the enemy. And, and our own heart begins to lie and say, this is what you need. But faith, the Bible says, extinguishes. When we say, I believe what God says rather than what the enemy's saying, then it begins to put out the fire in that arrow. Again, let me try to make this real practical. I'm going to give you an example. The sin of hatred. We see that a lot today, right? You know what the sin of hatred is rooted in? It's rooted in the lie that the person that I'm choosing to hate is so different than me. Culturally, theologically, politically, philosophically, practically. Hatred is rooted in the lie that this person is so different from me that my life would literally be better off without them in it. That's the sin of hatred. It's rooted in the lie that because of our differences, I'd be better off if you didn't exist. That's why in the Bible... Jesus equated hatred to murdering somebody in your heart. It's believing life would be better if you were not in it. But it's rooted in the lie that because of our differences, my life would be better. But but here's the truth. The truth is that person has been created in the image of God. Regardless of your differences, not only have they been created in the image of God, they've been made an object of the love of God. God desires to love them, and God desires to know them. Not only that, God desires to love them through me. And God desires to love me through them. In the moment that I feel the arrow of hate, I have to grab the shield of faith and say, God, I know culture, society, everybody else tells me right now that I need to hate. But your word says that's a person created in your image that you sent your son into this world to die for so that they could be forgiven of their sin and come to know you and be my brother and sister in Christ for all eternity. And by faith, I have to believe the truth and reject the lie. We got to know the truth. Then we have to believe the truth. Here's the last thing and we're done. We must walk in the truth. Paul then gets real practical at how we live this out moment by moment. He does it by closing with the two offensive weapons that we haven't talked about yet in this series. The first one he mentions in verse 17. Look at verse 17 up here on the screen. Paul says, and take the helmet of salvation and the, say it out loud, sword of the spirit, which is the what? I was brought up to understand this verse this way. And I'm telling you, this is the way I've always understood this verse. It wasn't until this series and our study of it that God changed my heart. Here's what I thought this meant. That the sword is the Bible, and I am to wield the Bible at the devil. There's a lot of you been taught that. That the way we deal with the enemy is we just throw the Bible at him, Right? We just quote the verses at him. We just quote the scripture at him. That the, the Bible says, it's my sword, and I'm to wield the sword at the enemy. But I want you to notice something. The sword of the who? 
It did not say the sword of the Christian. It's not the Christian sword. It's the sword of who? It's the Spirit's sword. And this is important because then it says, which is the, say this out loud, Word of God. And again, we always hear that to be the Bible. And listen, in some sense, it is the Bible because the Spirit speaks the truth of God from His Word into our heart. But in the Bible, there's a word that is always translated to mean the Bible. It's the Greek word logos. It's the word in Ephesians, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 4 that says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the logos of God. Or in 1 Peter chapter 2, when he says, like newborn babes, you long for the pure milk of the word, the logos. This is not the word logos. It's the word rhema in the Greek language. The word rhema is a word that means the spoken word. It's the word of the moment. Here's what I believe Paul is telling us here. Paul is teaching us that that it is the work of the Holy Spirit speaking truth into our lives in the moment of temptation. In the moment of temptation, the Holy Spirit in a still small voice is going to whisper the truth of God. He's going to wield that sword. This verse is not about me wielding the Bible at the devil. This This verse is about me yielding to the Holy Spirit as he speaks the word into my life. It's the Spirit. So here's the practical application. We must cultivate a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know the reason most Christians are a mess? Here's why. We step right past the voice of the Holy Spirit all the time. Temptation is shouting and screaming and waving its arms. The Holy Spirit in a still, small voice is just whispering the truth. Now, the truth that He's whispering is born out of our intimate fellowship with Jesus. It's laying that foundation of truth in our lives that the Holy Spirit then speaks in those moments of temptation. But here's the problem. Every time we step past the Holy Spirit's voice, there's a hardening of our heart that makes it more difficult and more difficult and more difficult to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. That's why when you are in the moment and you feel the flaming arrow, as soon as you hear the whisper of the Holy Spirit of God, you need to respond right then. Let me show it to you in the Bible. Here's where the Bible describes it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Look at it. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is this common demand. Here's what that means. Whatever you're facing today, you're not alone. We're all facing it. Don't let the enemy tell you you're the only one messed up like this. You're not. We're all in the same boat. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is this common demand. And what does it say? Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. And what? I love this because here's what it didn't say. Now you be faithful. The key to victory is not found in my faithfulness. He didn't say, no temptation. Now you be, no. He said, God is faithful. How's he faithful? He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. What is the way of escape? Here it is. It's the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit of God whispering the truth so that you can turn from the lie of the enemy and by faith grab a hold of the truth of God. But it requires a cultivation of a sensitivity to the voice of the Holy Spirit. 
Let me show you this in another place in Scripture to really bring this home. Jesus talked about it when he talked about the Holy Spirit in John 14 and in John 16. Look at it. John 14, verse 16. Listen to what it says. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of what? Don't take that lightly. He's the Spirit of what? Truth. Truth. Why? Because the enemy's a what? He's a liar. But we've not been left to fight the battle on our own. We've been given the spirit of what? Truth. And what does he say about the spirit of truth? Whom the world cannot receive because it did not see him or know him, but you know him. Why? Because he abides with you and he'll be in you. Then in chapter 16, verse 13, listen to what Jesus said. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, there it is again, the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all the what? There's the work of the Holy Spirit. Moment by moment, guiding us into the truth with that still, small voice speaking the truth of God into our lives. And that's the key to victory. The first thing we got to do is cultivate a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit in our hearts. He's speaking the truth. He promised to do it. We often fail to listen. Here's the second key. Verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Here's the second practical takeaway, and we're done. We must call out independence on the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul says, hey, moment by moment, the Holy Spirit is going to be speaking the truth into your life to combat the lies of the enemy. you got to take up the shield of faith. By faith, you got to trust and believe in the truth. But then here's what Paul says. You need to call out independence on the Spirit. He begins to talk about this thing of prayer. I love, I'll give you one more quote from Tony Evans. This is what Tony Evans said. Simply defined, prayer is earthly permission for heavenly interference. In the moment of temptation... I'm listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Here's what this is. I'm going to make this real practical. Tomorrow, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go to work. You're going to spend time with Jesus. Get up. Go to work. And the enemy's going to start firing. And you're going to feel the temptation. It's going to feel like your quiet time was a long time ago. The lies of the enemy. And the promise of God's Word is the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit is going to speak the truth. Don't believe that lie. And here's what needs to happen in that moment. Holy Spirit of God, I hear you. Listen, this is going to happen in your heart. You don't have to run to a closet and do this. It's right there in your heart. I hear you. But oh, in my weakness, I so want that. I so want to believe that lie. I need your strength. I need your power. I need your grace. Because apart from that, I'll never experience victory. Listen, what a lot of Christians want, they want deliverance. Deliverance means you never have the battle. God doesn't promise deliverance until heaven. But what he does promise is victory. You can have victory in the midst of the battle, but it's found in listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, crying out to him. And I love that Paul said, pray for all the saints. Meaning this, this weapon of prayer is not just to be used for you. You're to pray for the Holy Spirit of God to speak in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ as well. That's how we experience victory in the battle. Let's pray together. Father.
I pray today in a very practical way that your truth has been unpacked and that your Holy Spirit is even in this moment speaking into the lives of men and women, young people who are here, bringing transformation, conviction, change. Lord, we trust you today. We acknowledge our dependence upon you today. And we ask today that you would speak in profound ways. We're going to close this service in just a moment with a time of what we call response. It's an opportunity for you to respond to what God said to you today. We're going to have a worship team up here leading us in a song of worship. But in addition to that, we're going to have pastors here at the front. And if you're here today and first of all, you're not a Christian, you don't know what it is to have a relationship with God, to be forgiven of your sin. When we stand to sing in just a moment, we're going to invite you to come to give your life to Jesus. You see, the whole story of the Bible is that God loves you. You say, me? Absolutely you. You're here today because God loves you. And he loves you so much that even though you sinned against God just like I have, he sent his only son Jesus into the world. And Jesus took all of your sin and all of my sin on himself. And he died on a cross for our sin. But here's the good news. He didn't stay dead. He rose again as a testimony that God had accepted his sacrifice for our sin so that now you and I can turn from our sin, put our faith in Jesus, and we get to be born again into relationship with God. If you're here today and you've never experienced that, when we stand to sing in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to just come to one of our pastors today. And here's all you have to say. I need Jesus. That's it. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and show you from the Bible how you can begin a relationship with God today. But secondly, maybe you're here and you're already a Christian. Maybe you're engaged in the battle. And maybe you're even losing. You let the enemy defeat you with his lies. You've walked past the whisper of the Holy Spirit of God. Today we're going to take these steps up here at the front, open them up like an old-fashioned altar. Maybe while we're singing this song... You just need to come and just get along with God. Just get on your knees. Make a fresh surrender. Lord, I've been believing the lies, but today I surrender. God, I embrace your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy. And I choose to believe the truth today. Maybe you want to pray with one of our pastors about something in your job, your health, your family, your marriage, your relationship, whatever it is, we're here. This is an opportunity to respond today. Lord, have your way in this moment. Speak to us. Move among us. Holy Spirit of God, would you bring conviction? God, would you bring restoration? Would you bring life? It's in the name of Jesus we pray.